0: Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected
1: to the world of horse racing or cricket.
0: On today's podcast, I'm joined by Chris Pitt, author and racing historian, to talk about Tim Brookshaw, National Hunt Champion jockey in 1958-59, who is remembered for his remarkable ride in the 1959 Grand National. Hello, Chris. Hello there, Stephen. Well, thanks for joining me on The Paddock and the Pavilion. I've just read your latest book, Fearless, about Tim Brookshaw. He certainly was fearless.
2: Yeah, I think that the fearless title summed up the man. Yes, national hunt jockeys are pretty fearless as a race of people, aren't they? Um, Perhaps they were more of a cavalier bunch back in the 50s and 60s, the Scudamores, Biddlecombs, Giffords, Nittlesons. But Brookshaw was... He was a man of iron will determination. He fought back from a a broken back, not just to walk again, but to jump fences again and even ride in a charity race. And uh, as Bruff Scotty said in, in the forward, he had a spirit that's defied diminution.
0: Thanks for that introduction. I'd like to begin with his most famous ride. This is in the Grand National on the 21st of March, 1959. Could you set the scene for us for that race?
2: Yes, indeed. Big Field led over the water jump by uh, Jerry Scott and Michael Scudamore and uh, Tim Brookshaw on Oxo and Weinboro respectively are lying up there in the first three or four, and they're having a chat go down to Beechers because Brookshaw was a bit like that. he'd be talking about how the cows and heifers were going at home, even though he's riding over the most fearless, fearsome fences in the country and they come to Beecher's Brook and Jerry Scott's Mount Falls, and Tim's, as he's landing on Wineborough, the stirrup breaks. Now, not just the stirrup leather, I hasten to add, the actual iron itself snaps in two. And there's Brookshaw with eight fences and a mile and a half of the Grand National to go, Riding with just one iron, he kicks his other foot out of the iron and rides as near bareback as makes no difference. Um, Shouting out to Michael Scudamore, "Um, I've lost my iron, what shall I do? With maybe a couple of expletives thrown in. And uh, Scudamore just didn't answer and thought, thank heaven for that. Brookshaw goes on to finish second, beaten about a length and a half and would probably have won the race had he had two irons to ride with. Um, He didn't. Uh, He wasn't a great man to make a fuss, and the following day, while milking the cows, would simply admit to feeling a bit stiff.
0: Yeah, you've taken the words out of my mouth uh, (laughs) there, Chris, with with my notes here. Tim was on a fancied horse that day, wasn't he? Weinborough, yes, had already
2: finished second in a Grand National and um, was to become uh, Tim's ride. He was trained by Ken Oliver, and uh, Tim, towards the latter part of his career, rode a lot of horses for Ken Oliver. And uh, yes, this was one of the great Aintree campaigners, second altogether in three Grand Nationals without ever quite getting his head in front. And yes, he was one of the favourites and obviously stood every chance of winning it when the incident occurred. And in
0: 1959, when were the fences changed a little at Aintree? Because they were they were very stiff in those days, weren't they?
2: They were, and ironically, they were changed just the very next year when uh, Merriman won, on, uh, ridden by Jerry Scott. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, they had aprons put on the front of the fences, so they weren't bolt uprights. But when Tim rode in them in the race the year before, that's exactly what they were like. They were big upright fences with big drops on the landing side.
0: And this, this was the last national before uh, BBC started televising the race.
2: That's right. It was. And the the interesting thing is that the first ever race televised from Aintree was actually the Molyneux chase of 1958, which Tim himself won, um, won the race. And uh, yes, so he he did win races over the Grand National Fences, but not the big one.
0: And earlier I asked former leading jockey and BBC TV racing presenter Richard Pittman how difficult it would be to ride without stirrups?
1: You wouldn't want to do it, I can assure you. And you would get tired. Uh, It's easy with stirrups to take a rest if you need one. You know, you, you rest your hands with a bridge of the reins over the neck and just relax a little bit. If You want the horse to get a breather and yourself to get a breather. But if you've no stirrups, the art of staying on is totally balance and grip, more importantly. We have some uh, jockeys are split jumping into horsemen and jockeys. Some are jockeys and horsemen. But someone like Tim Brookshaw would have been brought up on ponies, hunting. He'd have started riding with no saddle. And that's important because you have to grip to stay on self-preservation. So the jumps, as they were in those days in 59, were big, the drops big, the corners very acute. So very, very difficult. Um, Fred Winter himself, uh, who I rode for, was a great horseman, rode round O-Toy with the reins broken, using his body weight to sway the horse around corners and things. So very, very difficult. Uh, I mean, what is amazing, someone like Asheen Murphy, who's taking sabbatical for a couple of years from the flat racing, is show jumping and also... Uh, hunting and team chasing now, and he is a horseman of the nth degree. Irish, probably brought up, as I say, with no saddle. So difficult is the answer to your question. You would get tired staying on, keeping your balance, keeping your grip for so long. Very difficult.
0: Just to go back to the beginning of uh, Tim's career. In fact, he was called Tim, but he was christened Stanley James.
2: Yes, that's quite right. A lot of people have speculated about that. He was born in 1929, and maybe some people thought it was after Tipperary Tim, a Shropshire horse that had won the Grand National the year before. But no, it was nothing to do with that. It was simply that uh, Tim's mother had a very close friend. They were pretty much sisters and she was engaged to a a chap named Tim Ward. Tim unfortunately um, died young and uh, when they went to see him in hospital shortly before he died um, they had the young uh, young lad with them uh, Tim's mother and father and Tim Ward said to them whatever you do don't name your child Tim because it's never brought me any luck. He knew he was going, a dying man, and so they named him Stanley James. The Stanley after his father, and the James after his grandfather. But from the day he, from the day they did that, he was always known at home as Tim. And Tim he remained throughout his career.
0: And was he destined to be a jockey? Because both of his brothers also raced, didn't they?
2: Yes, it, it was aspirational, but not really because he was from a family of farmers and farmers were, were the sort of career farming with the sort of career that you thought he'd go into. But of course, like most lads of that age, it started with, with uh, pony clubs and gymkhana's went on to point to points immediately after the uh, the war. Uh, decided then to go on as an amateur rider and his father took out a permit so that he could give him some help and uh, rode his first ever winner at war, the old race course at war in May 1948, on a horse called Ike II. And it was perhaps typical of him and and the way that his future would uh, would continue is that, um, well, The form book says that he won the race on Ike. What it doesn't reveal is that he actually rode with a cracked facial bone and a bandage around his jaw from a fall a couple of weeks earlier. So that's the sort of man he was.
0: I've got to ask you, I've written this down, where is war?
2: War is a Shropshire course. It's just... um, (laughs) It's in Shropshire, close to a little village called Pipe Gates. And Pipe Gate was actually where War Racecourse was. So the answer to that is it's a Shropshire venue.
0: And no doubt you'll know exactly when they stopped racing at war. They stopped racing in
2: 1963 in June. Yeah, they leased the land and it was during the the mini beaching act if you like Stephen of when uh it was decided that that it wasn't economic to have so many race courses and they wanted to close down a dozen and war was one of those it had about four days a year when it raced and uh they knew the lease was coming up and wasn't guaranteed to be renewed it also clashed with the local point-to-point and um Bill Tellwright, um a noted amateur rider at the time who organised the point-to-point, was, uh, was was quite keen on seeing that there was no further clashes so that when war actually rung down the curtain, it was a great benefit for the local point-to-point.
0: And you mentioned yeah. earlier that uh, Tim was a farmer and he combined farming with with riding, which sort of stopped him winning as many races as he could have won.
2: Yeah, well, that's exactly right, because um, the dairy farming was a summer occupation. So rather than the traditional start of the season down in Devon at Newton Abbott and Buckfastley and uh, and Exeter, Tim wouldn't actually get going until probably the first meeting at war in October, and those first two months just passed him by while he was far too busy with the farm to to go on about riding. And it was only in the, the latter years That's in the late 50s when he decided he'd make a determined bid for the championship and you'd find him riding at newton and Exeter in August.
0: And he was champion jockey in 1958-59 season. So did he start early that year?
2: Yes, he did. It
0: it started early the
2: year before and that uh, gave him a a taste for doing it. And all the way through the season, it was a battle between Tim and, and Fred Winter. And by the time they got to April, I think there was only four or five winners in uh, between the two of them. And Fred had a bad fall at uh, Fontwell Park, uh, broke his jaw, and that was him for the season. So Tim was left then to uh, to continue. And I think he rode about 89 winners that year, which doesn't sound a lot by today's standards, but that's how it was then. And um, <laughs> ironically, uh, his season was ended about a fortnight before the end when he broke his leg in a race at Taunton. So he uh, he was far enough clear not to be overtaken,
0: but ended the season with a broken leg. And that was the same year of his uh, famous ride in the Grand National?
2: Yes, it was, absolutely. Yeah, that the um, the broken leg occurred about two months after Wineborough's second place. Yes, indeed. He was at, really at the peak of his career then in the late 50s.
0: And national hunt racing was very different in those days. Less meetings and I would imagine getting about the country because of the roads would be very different from today.
2: Well, yes, but it it didn't seem to matter to Tim in some ways. Who was a a very noted fast driver. Ivor Markham, a jump jockey from the 1960s, uh, used to travel with him to some of these meetings down in the southwest and couldn't believe how quickly they... They got there. There were no speed cameras in those days, of course. And Brookshaw, who actually did say that at one stage, if he hadn't been a jockey, he would like to have been a racing driver, drove like a racing driver all the way down there. He was pretty hairy.
0: So his character was a, was a, like a daredevil person?
2: Yes, very much. I think that you know, summed up by the occupation that he undertook as a, a national hunt jockey. They, in those days, were very, very... Well, daredevil is one word. And, of course, um, they didn't have the protection of the that they have now. The the skull caps were basically pieces, pieces of glass with no strap that would come off at the slightest bump. So, um, yeah, it was uh, perhaps a more daredevil profession then than it is now.
0: And that's another question I posed to Richard Pittman, and this is what he had to say about Tim's character.
2: He was a broad,
1: Shropshire farmer, accent-wise, um hard man from a hard family very capable with a great character because if you if you're farming a lot of cattle and other things you get a lot of setbacks as well as a lot of pluses. Um, and so he was a character in the waiting room he used to entertain us all but his favorite saying was when he'd meet you or meet someone else how now brown cow and <laughs> He even said it to the Queen Mother one day, and she roared with laughter. I think she'd probably been, uh, you know, given the, the, the thumbs up, or not thumbs up, The said that this, this is what he can come out with, Mom, you know. Anyway, he did, and she loved it. But what a great way to greet people. Oh, no brown coat. So a, a, a great character and superb to be in the waiting room. And It was a marvellous era,
0: He did win the Scottish Grand National in 1963.
2: He did, yes, on on Papagino's Cottage trained by Ken Oliver, uh, Weinborough's trainer, and he only ever rode one winner at Cheltenham, um, which was, again, for uh, Ken Oliver on a horse called Happy Arthur. Uh, Yeah, the thing with Brookshaw, he rode 550 winners. You would never call him a great jockey in terms of style. He certainly wasn't stylish. He won his races out in the country. And nearly all the photos you've got of of Brookshaw, interestingly, show him with his hand raised, arm raised, jumping the last. And um, (laughs) in fact, the the pictures were really um, one of the things that I was thinking, how on earth am I going to get hold of these? But as it turned out, the book itself contains about 80 of them.
0: But Cheltenham wasn't quite as big as it is today with all the the grade one races.
2: No, Cheltenham wasn't. Um, I mean, the two-mile champion chase only started in 1959, but um, it, it was still the headquarters of racing, of course, and they only raced on the old course. But Tim... The best horse he ever rode was at Cheltenham, not at the big meeting, but at uh, the april meeting and it 's one that i 'm absolutely certain that uh, every listener today will have heard of, and that was mill house Millhouse um, had had one run over fences at Hurst Park, which had ended in a fall and he'd lost his confidence and the trainer who was Sid Dale at the time wanted someone who would well get the horse round safely and build that confidence back up and they entrusted Tim Brookshaw with the ride and this was in April 1962 and over the first two or three fences he could see that Milhouse was was scared of what he was doing so he took the horse right to the outside and rode him as if he was schooling at home if you like away from the rest of them gradually Milhouse starts to build up that confidence he's gaining his position and coming to the second last is going very, very well. Jumps the last and goes away to win very impressively. So much so, I think that Peter O'Sullivan, who was calling the race, said that something to the effect of, um, I've rarely seen a horse win so easily at Cheltenham. And Len Thomas, who was the Sporting Life senior racing correspondent at the time, uh, he said, this is an outstanding horse and is, should be a live contender for next year's Cheltenham Gold Cup, which 12 months or 11 months before the race was quite a prescient statement. But sure enough, Milhouse went on to win the Gold Cup, but not with Tim on. And the reason for that was that during the summer, Millhouse's owner Bill Gollings and trainer Sid Dale had a bit of a falling out. Gollings then transferred Millhouse and his other horses to Fulk Warwin, for whom Willie Robinson was a stable jockey. Robinson thereby inherited the ride, and that was it. And that was the last time that Tim ever got to sit on Millhouse. And ironically, there's, there's a picture in the Hennessy Gold Cup. Per, of november 63 which was the occasion the only occasion when milhouse beat Arkle, and you've got Millhouse jumping the fence with arkel alongside and just to Arkle's right is tim brookshaw on papagino's cottage the horse who won the he'd won the scottish national on and that would have been the month before the fall that ended his career
0: yeah you're talking then about um his fall at Aintree where he did have quite a bit of success. You'd already mentioned the Molyneux chase, but he won some big races at Aintree.
2: He did. Yeah. He won the Molyneux chase for the first time in in 1951. And that in itself is quite interesting, Stephen, because uh, we all know and have seen many, many times the footage of Devon Locke in the Grand National and Dick Francis and the horse sprawling to the ground within 50 yards of the winning post. Well, Something that happened five years before that was remarkably similar because in the 1951 Molyneux chase, Dick Francis was riding a horse called Possible and Tim was riding uh, a horse called Royal Stewart. Possible jumped the last fence in the Molyneux about five lengths in front and stayed. it stayed that way up the run-in. And with about 50, 60 yards to run, Possible is still four or five lengths clear with the race in the bag. And he pulls himself up virtually to a walk and is beaten a short head on the line by Tim Brookshaw. And this is something that Francis, not just once, but twice, lost two uh, races over the Grand National course in the last 50 yards when he got it sewn up. And it's quite remarkable that that particular race I only found out about by reading some of the, the cuttings in Tim's scrapbooks. Uh, it's just amazing how T- Dick Francis had actually lost that race on the line five years before the Devon Lock incident. And also, Tim, as, as you mentioned, did win all the races. He won the uh, the Grand Sefton chase uh, on a horse called Eternal, who was a Grand National regular and, um, so yes, he, he did have plenty of success over the fences, but of course, it was a dying tree that his career was ended.
0: Yes, uh, on the 4th of December 1964, he suffered a life-changing injury riding Lucky Dora.
2: Yes, that's right. And and ironically, it was a hurdle race. Um, no one particularly wanted to go on. And so uh, Tim himself decided to make the running on Lucky Dora. And all went fairly well until uh, when they were in the back straights. Um, sort of out of view of most of the people, to be honest, except those with binoculars. And uh, what happened was Lucky Dora was then taken on uh, by another horse, um, panicked perhaps, and crashed through the wing of the hurdle. And it was a horrific fall where Tim landed on his face and his stomach and his feet jackknifed over his back. So his, his, his feet were almost touching his head it was it was that awful um yes he was taken then to walton hospital that night obviously in a very uh serious condition he was told by the doctors that he would never ever walk again but tim was the sort of character and 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 as i mentioned the iron will determination he was the man who was determined above everything to prove them wrong
0: and he certainly did that, uh, Chris, didn't he? Um, not only did he walk again, he sat on a horse again. He he was a trainer. He worked on the farm and he also won a Paralympic silver medal.
2: Yes, that, that's right. Uh, within about nine, ten months of that fall, he was in Tokyo uh, for the, uh, the, the Paralympics, which, of course, in those days didn't have anything like the cachet or the coverage that you have now, which... They they follow a fortnight after the Olympics. They were very much a, a, a forgotten about thing there. But Tim um, represented Britain in the javelin um, from his wheelchair and Julie won a silver medal, which his son still has. So that in itself was a remarkable achievement. Um, he also uh, was involved in um, uh, various other wheelchair sports, uh, wheelchair basketball, and um, yeah, I mean, he left hospital within about two months and that summer, later that summer, he, he managed to put together some sort of um, winch systems where he was able to haul himself up and position himself on the back of their children's pony so that he was actually in the saddle again legs paralysed obviously but able to control the horse with his hands Uh, and to do that after you've been told you'll never walk again and I think that that is it in many ways because if you broke your back in the early 1960s as he did you were pretty much confined to a wheelchair there were no treadmills there were no personal trainers there were no hydro pools to get you to to work those muscles again that was pretty much it and i think elaine meller um sort of uh, said that to the, there was no motivation but tim himself motivated himself to a degree that was pretty much unknown then and you know that's that again i think is what makes him such an intriguing character
0: yeah we forget all the things that are now available that weren't Available in Tim's time and Tim's Hall also began the process towards the Injured Jockeys Fund following another jockey's fall, Paddy Farrell, in the 1964 Grand National.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. Um, Tim was actually invited to that Grand National and attended and was there when Paddy Farrell, uh, riding a horse called Border Grace, fell at the chair in in 64 and broke his back in an even worse way than than tim had done and he again was um taken to hospital where he, he was told he would never walk again after those two injuries um the public well it, racing itself began to wonder about whether these guys are compensated enough and shortly after the grand national there was actually a uh, uh, an article which appeared in the Daily Mail by a columnist named J.L. Manning. And just to, to quote from it here, it says, Paddy Farrell lies paralysed with a broken back in a Southport hospital. He has four children, all under six. Now, at that time, as he points out, if a jockey is injured, he may receive 12 pounds shillings a week for 52 work weeks from the National Hunt Accident Fund, to which each jockey must contribute five shillings for every horse he rides and half his licence fee every year. But if he's totally incapacitated, he may receive up to £4,000. If he dies within a year, his widow may be given the choice of either £3,000 or £3 per week, which was really nothing. And Manning called for the compulsory insurance of all poorly paid national hunt jockeys, which they were, and he ended by saying... We must not let the sporting conscience of a welfare state vanish down a 19-inch tube, i.e. you see it on TV and forget about it. So what happened was that um, Clifford Nicholson, who was the main owner with Charlie Hall, for whom Farrell was the stable jockey and effectively, therefore, was Farrell's employer, he organised a fund to try and get uh, uh, some donations for the two stricken jockeys. Mirabelle Topham, the owner of Aintree, was the first woman to put money into the pot and donated £1,000. It was sensationally successful. By April, they'd... Gathered over thirty thousand pounds. There was everything that people are organising dances and film shows. There were uh, collection boxes in these these stuffy old betting offices, which, offices which had opened two day, two years before, um, and it was so successful that Farrell and Brookshaw said, "Look, there is just far too money, too much money here than we need," and. John Lawrence, later Lord Oaksey, uh, wrote a letter to the Sporting Life saying that we intend to have this fund distributed not just to these two, but to all injured national hunt jockeys. The injured national hunt jockeys fund eventually moved into the injured jockeys fund, but that was the catalyst for what we have today.
0: That's a very fan- fantastic story. And now we've got these three fabulous centres at Moulton, Lambourne and Newmarket where jockeys, um, flat and jump jockeys can go to rehabilitate. And, you know, it's just in such a difference to what it was when Tim fell back in all those days.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, if only those things had been around far, far earlier. Uh, Jack Berry, of course, was just instrumental in in so much of this. And when uh, Paddy Farrell had had the fall, he was one of several northern jockeys. He used to go around with collecting boxes and, and uh, at the uh, the races themselves, getting donations from the public. And they, the, the public were absolutely great about it, and they'd be putting money into the, the boxes. Um, and, and, again, this is why the, the fund was so successful.
0: But, sadly, Tim had one more fall when he aged only 52 which ended his life
2: yes that's right i mean tim what he did after the fall was really quite remarkable he, he took up training uh, not just training horses from a wheelchair or anything but actually riding the horses over fences on the gallops and what happened one day was that there was a particularly fractious horse that um, he's his stable staff said, this horse is uh, acting up a bit. Leave it alone. We'll take him out after we've galloped the others. But Brookshaw wasn't like that. Brookshaw was a man who would not be defeated by a horse. He'd seen all this before. He'd ridden horses like this before. He saddled the horse up, took him out on towards the gallops. The horse was bucking and rearing. He reared to the effect that Brookshaw, who of course had no power uh, little power beneath the waist was thrown off and being a jockey you automatically hold on to the reins the horse double barreled him in the back of the neck and brookshaw was paralyzed again and that was an injury from which he he never recovered
0: i've got to go back to aintree because i've got a couple of other things i wanted to mention about about tim and connected to tim and uh, the two stirrup pieces were both found and earlier again i spoke to richard pitman who at the time working for the BBC, recalled the story of how the second smaller part was found. And and this is what Richard had to say.
1: Yes. Now, that was my idea. And it came about, uh, I'm very chatty, as you know, and I like people. And when I was at Taunton Races for, at the races, as it was called then, now Sky TV, I would talk to all the gate men. I knew all the gate men. And uh, people have interesting stories. And I got chatting to a guy called John McGay, and I'm not quite sure how it's spelt, who manned the crossing after the paddock to get across the course for the horses to go to the start. I got chatting to him. It turned out that he was a former justice of the peace and also British ambassador at one of the foreign satellites. You know, and there he is on the gate. Most people just walking past him, educated, interesting Fascinating man, and uh, after about the third or fourth time I'd been speaking to him, he uh, put his hand in his pocket and pulled out this little shiny bit of metal. He said, "This would interest you, Richard," and that was the story. He had been up there for the first time when Tim's stirrup broke in the race, and it broke up near the the top where the leather goes through. That's why it's it's come apart. You see, if it had broken down below might have been easier. Who knows? But John, after he he watched it from down by Beecher's Brook, and after the race was over, instead of walking back up to the stands, he decided to walk the course and see what, what it was like on foot and came across this little shiny bit of metal, and there it was, about an inch long. It was the top piece of the stirrup. So I made inquiries of Steve Brookshaw, who was training at the time, trained Lord Galeen to win the national, and he said, oh, yes, we, we've we got the, the bulk of the stirrup, but we haven't got the little bit. So I was able to marry them up. And uh, we, we recorded this piece with with both John McGay and with the, I think it was a nephew who had this, the, the other bit of the stirrup. We put them together just like a jigsaw. It was magic. I thought, well, that's good television. Anyway, I'm doing my bits and it doesn't come on. And I, I get on the old intercom to the producer what's happened to that that bit about the stirrup oh we've had to drop three pieces he said because there's a some mishap on the race course we've got to concentrate on that and and so it never went out but it was lovely to bring the people together but the story you know here it is oh i'd have i'd have i'd have bought that for very good money because it's history and it will never go away that
0: would be lovely to see that story on tv now wouldn't it Yeah, I should think it's in the archives. I ought to give them a ring. But the family were successful at Aintree in 1997 when Tim's nephew, Steve Brookshaw, trained the winner, Lord Gilleen. That's
2: right. And, of course, that was the famous year when the race was run on the Monday. And, uh, yeah, um, Steve himself um, was very, very helpful with the book, as was... um, Tim's son, also named Tim, and his stepson, Wayne Spedding, who was the catalyst for the book. Um, the family itself, uh, Stephen, was, um, they, they were keen that the story should be told warts and all. And this, again, is, is why it makes the story uh, a bit more interesting because Tim was the life and soul of the party, but family relationships weren't as good. He was a very, very hard taskmaster. Um, Yes, he he was not a saint. He had affairs. Um, He was divorced from his first wife, who then unfortunately um, slid into alcoholism and ended up taking her own life. He remarried. Um, So, yeah, you know, there are some very dark parts of this book involving suicide, alcoholism and the like. Um, But as I say, I think it's stronger for that. And uh, the the fact is that the whole story has been told. Uh, It's not beatifying this man as a saint. He was a a genuine human being with faults, um, faults and an iron will determination. And it's probably that iron will that helped him to make such a great job of his recovery.
0: And Chris, perhaps... Tim's legacy really is the Injured Jockeys Fund, which does so much today for flat and jump jockeys.
2: I think so, yes. It was the Farrell Brookshaw Fund, which then was extended to become the Injured National Hunt Jockeys Fund. And then, of course, we realised that flat jockeys get injured too. And that's what became the Injured injured jockeys fund which of course is a a fantastic charity that does so much good work for not just retired jockeys but also jockeys uh um, present recovering from injuries and so on and so forth um and yes it would be great to think that that is the legacy of tim brookshaw
0: well i'd like to thank you uh, chris for writing the book um it's a, a story about someone who many people of today will have forgotten that he really was superman um remembered for losing a race but the things he achieved um up until his his death at the uh, young age of only 52
2: yeah uh, and <laughs> It was his refusal to give in to the cards that life had dealt him. Uh, And and that, I think, resonates not just across racing, but across all sports that carry a risk of life-changing injuries. He was, you could say, an inspiration to anyone in adversity.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Chris, for joining me on The Paddock and the Pavilion. It's been a a great uh, story to tell, and uh, I'd recommend anyone to read your book, Fearless, about Tim Brookshaw.
2: Thank you. It's, it's been great talking with you. It's uh, available by uh, via Amazon uh, or the publisher's New Generation Publishing. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a re- really good story.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pav. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.